Uh, Everyone else, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. If you ever uh, forget your Bible or are carrying too many kids to bring your Bible, you can always grab one out in the lobby or uh, back by the offering box on your way in. And uh, we'd encourage you to, to, to have God's Word in front of you. We'll have some of the verses up on the screen as well. Well, one of, uh, one of the favorite rooms in our house uh, is, our, is our sunroom. And the reason that we like our sunroom so much is, is not because that's the room that, that last year during the shutdown, that was the room I preached to you from over Zoom uh, while my neighbors were doing yard work and distracting me and things like that. Uh, that's, that's not why it's one of my favorite rooms. Uh, no, I like our sunroom because it has so many windows. It has so many windows, and lots of sunlight gets in the room. It almost makes you feel like you're outside without having to endure the extreme cold of the winter or the extreme humidity of the Indiana summer. Uh, don't get me wrong, I like being outside for the two weeks of spring and fall. It's pleasant to be out there, but otherwise the sunroom just really provides a nice environment for it. Um, uh, what I also like about the windows, though, mainly is that you can see through the windows to what's on the outside. You can see through the windows to what's outside. Now, I've heard that Morgantown has really liked the windows at the Harnishes place because they don't have blinds up yet, and so they can see in. Uh, and that's a whole different you know, reason to appreciate windows. But, but what I like about our windows is that I can see outside. I can see the beauty that surrounds our house. Right? When you look outside through windows, you can see the, the possibilities and the potential of the, of the world and the people that live around you. Now, being in a room full of windows, can we not agree, is very different from being in a room full of mirrors. A room full of mirrors, whether it's at the gym or whether it's, uh, you know, in, in a fun house, a, 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 a mirror maze or something like that. When you're in a room full of mirrors, pretty much all you can see is yourself, but you don't get to look out to see the world and the people that are around you. In a room full of mirrors, you don't get to consider and think about the potential and the possibilities and the value of the people all around you. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes you need to look in front of a mirror. I think the Bible says there are times, right? We got to look in a mirror. We got to make sure there's not a log in our eye or something like that. And so there are times to look in a mirror. But living in a room full of mirrors is a miserable life. And yet that is how some of us live. Only seeing and thinking about ourself, only seeing and considering our wants, our needs, our desires. And we do this even as Christians, although we kind of spiritualize it to spiff it up a little bit and make us feel a little bit better about living in a room full of mirrors. Uh, You know, a lot of times we pick the church, we pick the small group, we pick the activities that will be best for us, that will benefit us, that, you know, we will get something out of. Someone living in a house full of mirrors typically only participates in the, acts, in the aspects of church life that they think will directly and immediately benefit them. Directly and immediately benefit them with little to no consideration about the people around them. 
or even the future generations of the people in their city and of their neighbors that are around them. When you live in a room full of mirrors, you can't see those things. You can't see anything outside of yourself. And many of us, we've chosen to replace windows with mirrors. And this morning, what we're going to be challenged to do is to add some windows to our lives. As we will be challenged to look not just to our own interests, but also into the interests of others. In the book of Hebrews, which we've just been preaching through the book of Hebrews here, uh, we've just come to a, a section, we've come to the end of a section that really started back in Hebrews 4, verses 14 and through, through 16. And so if you want to see two bookends of one section, look at chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and you'll see a lot of comparisons to where we are at today. Uh, but, but from chapter 4 to chapter 10, we've been teaching on this glorious doctrine of Jesus Christ being our great high priest and how he has offered up himself as our perfect and ultimate sacrifice for sins. And now because of the truth of that, through faith in him, we can be cleansed, we can be forgiven of our sin, and we can have access back into the presence of God. That's a glorious truth. It's a wonderful doctrine we've been studying the last few months. But now in the book of Hebrews, a shift is happening. All right, because now we're going to see in light of this glorious doctrine we've been learning about the last few months, the author of Hebrews is now going to call us to do some things. Right? In light of this doctrine we've just learned, now what is our duty as Christians? And he's not just going to call you to do some things. He's not just going to call me to do some things. He's going to call us to do these things. Us. These verses we'll cover this morning that Britt just read, 19 through 25 of chapter 10. In the original Greek, it is one long sentence. One long thought as we go from learning doctrine to now our duty as Christians in light of this doctrine. And our author here is essentially going to say, hey, therefore, in light of this doctrine, let us do some things. And he's going to call us to, to let us draw near to God. He's going to call us, he's going to say, hey, let us hold fast to our confession and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And so that is where we are going. Let's pray and then we will jump into the passage. Father God, we do thank you for this glorious doctrine, this wonderful truth that we have learned from your word, that Jesus, you are our great high priest. We ask now that the Holy Spirit would give us light to see how this doctrine should transform our lives. Lord, help us see how this, how this now needs to play out in the current context and community that we live. Father, we ask that you would help us look at your word with eyes to see, ears to hear. May we receive this. May it produce fruit in our lives and in your church. We ask that this morning, through the work of Christ, because of the work of Christ, that we would draw near to you with true hearts and in full assurance of faith. Father, help us hold fast to the truth of the gospel and show us, show us how to stir up one another to love and good works. We ask all this, 
in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, Hebrews 10. You guys ready? Okay, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here at the start, we get a a recap a little bit of the last few months, right? That Jesus is our better priest because he has opened the curtain for us. He didn't just go behind the curtain and leave us on our own. He opened the curtain for us. The barrier that separated a holy God and sinful humanity, he opened it and he invites us in to follow him in into the presence of God. That's a glorious doctrine. That's a, that's a wonderful truth. Therefore, in light of that, he says, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. You see, when we forget what Christ has done, we do not have confidence to draw near to God. Our natural instinct is to run and hide in shame like Adam and Eve did. Our natural inclination is to isolate ourselves from God and others. But now, through faith in Christ, people, all of us who were once guilty sinners, we can now with confidence draw near to God. And therefore, we need one another to remind one another of the reconciling work of Christ. We need one another to remind one another of this truth, that our identity is now in Him, that we can now follow Him into the presence of God. And this is really the ultimate good news of the gospel. I mean, think about these things for for a second here. Uh, The good news of the gospel is not just that you can now go to bed with a clean and clear conscience. I mean, that's nice. Don't get me wrong, that's nice. But why is that ultimately nice, to have a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience? Like, why is that so amazing? The good news of the gospel is not just that we get to go to heaven. I mean, that's nice. Don't get me wrong. That's wonderful. But, but like, like, why is that so amazing? What's waiting for us in heaven? What's waiting for us in the new heavens and new earth? Why is that so amazing? The good news of the gospel is not even that now our sins are forgiven. I mean, why is it nice to have our sins forgiven? What's so great about that? What's so ultimately amazing about that? You see, the good news of the gospel and the reason that these other things are so nice is because now we get to draw near to God. We get, we get to be with God. Like, why, why have we been going on and on about Christ being our great high priest and interceding for us and Him being the perfect sacrifice for our sins and all that? Like, so what? What's the big deal? It's because the work of Jesus now makes it possible for us to get God. He is the treasure. He is why all these other things are so amazing. He is why the gospel is good news. It's that we get God. 
We get to now draw near to him. We get to know him. We get to enjoy him. We get to speak with him. We get to hear from him. We get to work with him. We get to find our satisfaction in him. We get to draw near to God. That is good news. And God's word says that we are to draw near with a true heart. A true heart. A true heart is a sincere heart. A true heart is the opposite of a hypocritical heart, if that helps you understand it a little bit more. A hypocritical heart would be the opposite of a true heart. A true heart does not carry with it any ulterior motives. A true heart draws near to God to get God with no strings attached. A true heart draws near to God to get God, even if it means they've got to lose everything else in the world, they know that their treasure is God. You see, some people draw near to God to try to get things from God. Some people draw near to God to get a better marriage. Some people draw near to God to get more well-behaved kids. Some people draw near to God to get rid of some guilt that they've been carrying with them. Some people draw near to God to just get some friends. They feel isolated and lonely. They just want to be a part of a community like this, right? Uh, Maybe some people draw near to God to get some purpose or some meaning in their life. And listen, all those things are very good byproducts of drawing near to God. But a true Christian with a true heart draws near to God to get God. And that is who Jesus said are truly blessed and happy in this life and in the life to come. Matthew 5, verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why are they blessed? Why are they happy? For they shall see God. Church, who are we to complain? when we don't get from God what we want. God has already given us the best. He's given us himself. And so my question for you is, are you drawing near to God with a true heart, a sincere heart? And another question for you, how are you helping others draw near to God with a true heart? The word says, let us draw near to God with a true heart. Or are you drawing near in a house full of mirrors, only thinking and seeing of things for yourself? Or are you drawing near and helping others draw near as well? Well, in verse 23, we see another let us statement. Hebrews Hebrews 10 verse 23 says, let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession. Let us hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Let us have a tight grip on the doctrine we've, that has been taught to us from God's word. Let us have a tight grip on Christ. It's one thing to make a confession of faith. Many people do that. And many of the original recipients of this letter or sermon to the Hebrews, they had professed Christ. 
And yet as persecution came, as hardships came, as they were being pushed to the fringes of of Jewish and Roman society and culture, some of them were running back to Judaism. Some of them were wanting to go back to the temple and start offering sacrifices again. Some people were wanting to go back to just being, you know, believing and doing what their friends and family had always done. And God is telling them here to hold fast. Hold fast. Many people profess Christ, but those who have been united to him and have drawn near with a true heart, they hold fast. And part of our joyful duty as a Christian is to hold fast, church. This language of holding fast, it does imply that there are going to be difficulties ahead for followers of Christ. There will be many dangers, toils, and snares, right? There will be opposition. There will be seasons of doubting and heavy-heartedness. There will be times where our faith will be weak and we will be struggling. He doesn't say, let us draw near, and then it's smooth sailing from then on. He says, let us draw near and let us hold fast. Let us hold fast. Now, it's not completely up to our own strength to hold fast. Praise God for that. We know that we are holding on to a God who is holding his people in his hand. And it can be difficult at first to try to understand how how God's preservation of his people and, and the call to human perseverance, it can be at first seem like those things are at odds with one another or that it's either or, like it's either God preserves his people to the end or it's his people persevere. But it need not be either or, church. It is both. It is both of those things. And John Owen, he understood this. We're going to have a quote from him up on the screen. Bear with me through some of the the doths and the old-timey language. He writes, It is true that our persistency in Christ doth not depend absolutely on our own diligence. The unalterableness of our union with Christ on the account of the faithfulness of the covenant of grace, is that which doth and shall eventually secure it. But yet, our own diligent endeavor is such an indispensable means for that end, as that without it, it will not be brought about. You see, yes, God ordains the end from the beginning, but he also ordains the means to that end. And the means to the end of God preserving his people is that we must persevere. We must hold fast. But as we hold fast, we must rest and trust in the why. Why do we persevere? Why do we hold fast? Is it so that we can become faithful? Is that why we hold fast? No, verse 23 says, we hold fast for he who promised is faithful. God's faithfulness is not dependent upon our faith. Our faith is dependent upon his faithfulness. And God is faithful to fulfill all his promises, church. Great is God's faithfulness to us. God's faithfulness means that he will never be or act anything that is in, or do anything that is inconsistent with himself. 
It means that he can be trusted. He can be relied upon. He can be depended upon. He will keep his word. I mean, you can, you can go through the good times in life, and, and, uh, and it, you can get through those by kind of checking out your own faith and faithfulness in the mirror. Right? Like, like you're, when, when, when things are good, when things aren't hard, it's fine to kind of look in the mirror and say, oh yeah, you know, I'm being, I'm being faithful, I've got faith. But I'm telling you, when the pressure gets cranked up in your life, and when hardships come, and when heavy-heartedness comes, and when persecution comes, your only chance of holding fast is to remember God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. God is faithful. He can be trusted. He can be relied upon. He will keep his promises. We can hold fast without wavering because he is faithful. Well, you might be thinking, okay, well, how does God strengthen our faith in his faithfulness? How does he do that? Well, he first, he does, he gives us his word, right? And we, and we get to read about how time after time and year after year and person after person, how he has been faithful to his people. In fact, we're coming upon a chapter, uh, Hebrews 11, right? Sometimes called the, the Hall of Faith. And, uh, and just so you guys know, we're, we're going to really, you, some people have asked where we're going after the book of Hebrews. We're, we're going to still be in Hebrews for a while, all right? Because we're going to take maybe seven or eight sermons to go through Hebrews 11 to really see how God has been faithful to his people, how he has kept his promises, how he can be trusted, how he can be relied upon. But certainly his word does help strengthen our faith and his faithfulness to see this time after time. God has been faithful. But you might still be thinking, hey, that's nice and all, but this is, this is all about God's past faithfulness. How is he faithful to us in the present? In the year 2021, how do we tangibly feel and experience his faithfulness? And these are, these are good questions. You guys are asking good questions today. So let's see. Let's look at these next uh, verses, right? Uh, because let's see our next joyful duty as a Christian. We've seen that we must draw near, that we must hold fast, but now we are going to see God's faithfulness to us in the present through the gift of one another, the church. You see, oftentimes in those dark and heavy seasons, when we can't always see God's faithfulness to us, are we need our brothers and sisters who are living in houses with windows that can see and consider how we are struggling, and they can come remind us of God's faithfulness. Notice, notice what verse 24 says. Hebrews 10, verse 24. It says, And let us consider how to stir ourselves." up to love and good works. Is that, is that what it says? That's not what your guys' translation says? Okay. Dad seems to be the only one answering me today. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> Appreciate it. What about this? Does it say this? Does it, okay, so it doesn't say ourself, right? So it says one another, right? Uh, okay, does it say this? And let us condemn one another for their lack of love and good works. Is that, is that, what, it, is that what you guys have? Hebrews 10.24, let's look what it says. <laughs> and let us consider, 
how to stir up one another to love and good works. This word, let us consider, all right? It means to look at something closely, to really investigate, to turn this matter over and over in our minds. Let us consider. Let us really think about this carefully and deliberately and diligently. Let's, let's really take a close look at this. Let's chew on this this week in our city groups as we wrestle with this text, right? Let us consider. Let us consider what? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. To stir up, it means to provoke, to stimulate. And it's, it's, it's a word that can be used in both a negative and a positive way. All right, now this text is using it in a positive way. A, a negative use of the word would be to refer to a state of irritation or a sharp disagreement or a stirring up of trouble. And some of you are like, oh yeah, that's, that's been my past church experiences. Like they, uh, those people must have been taking this in light of the negative use of this term. But in the context, this is not a stirring up of trouble. This is not a, a, a causing it to be an irritant or divisive or to be painful just to be painful. No, this is a stirring up, sometimes still by a sharp prodding, but this is a stirring up of one another to love and good works. And I think some of us are good at stirring up or provoking, but not necessarily always to love and good works. And Spurgeon, he, he, he warned against this. And he once wrote about this uh, passage. He says, I am afraid there are some who consider one another to provoke in quite a different spirit from this. And this is my fear as well. Who watch to find out a tender spot where a wound will be most felt. They observe the weakness of a brother's constitution and then play upon it or make jest about it. All this is evil, so let us avoid it. Let us all seek out the good points of our brethren and consider them that we may afterwards be the means of guiding them to those peculiar good works for which they are best adapted. You see, some of us who are good at stirring up, I do fear that we stir up and provoke in quite a different spirit from what Hebrews 10.24 is telling us to do. When I was first out of college, I've shared some of this before with some of you, but um, I had started to experience somewhat of a calling and a desire for local church ministry, and it was starting to be affirmed by others. However, there was still this underlying frustration that I had with the church. And I grew up a pastor's kid, right? And in church, I got exposed to see some of the, just some of the pettiness of church life, some of the arguments and the messiness of church life. And it really caused and tempted me to get really frustrated with church people and the church in general. 
And this was also then during a time that, that church planting was starting to become a really popular and kind of a cool thing to do. Uh, but so many of the young church planters at that time, they were wanting to plant churches out of a frustration with their current ones. And so as I was praying about ministry and things like that, and whether or not I should go to seminary, pursue pastoral ministry, I knew I was not ready. Because in my 20s, if you would have asked me, why do you want to be a pastor, or why would you want to plant a church, I would have said, well, because I'm frustrated with mine. <laughs> and that would not have been good for anyone. But then something happened as there was a, a point when God overwhelmed me with a sense and a realization that the church, even the church in America, is the bride of Christ. And I knew if I was really going to love and follow Jesus and be obedient to him and call myself a friend of Jesus, that I needed to also love his bride in perfections and all. And ever since then, yes, I can see some of the ways that the church is weak and wavering. Yes, there are still some frustrations that I have with the church, but I deeply love and value the local church. And when I went through church planter assessment through our church planting network, they asked me when I knew I was supposed to go into pastoral ministry, and I said it was when my love for the church far outweighed my frustrations with the church. Now, why do I share that? I share that because I fear some of us have done more condemning of the lack of love and good works in the church then we have considering how to stir up one another to love and good works. We've used more mental energy being frustrated with people than really prayerfully considering how to help them become loving people who are zealous for good works. And so where's your heart at? Does your frustration outweigh your love for the local church? And I say the local church not to diminish our responsibilities to the global church, but I say local church because it's the church, it's way easier to love a part of the body of Christ that we do not know. The local church is the one we're tempted to be frustrated with because they're the ones we've got to live life with and rub shoulders with. They're the ones we've got to work through things with and forgive one another and love one another and carry out all the one another's of scriptures together. And so we oftentimes like to think that it's the complacent, the complacent cultural Christians that are hurting the church in America. And, and that might be true. Maybe that was true at one point. Maybe that's true in some churches. But I don't think that's necessarily who's at risk of hurting our church. Church plants oftentimes don't uh, uh, attract the cultural complacent Christian because we don't have the programs and the bells and whistles, right? So I don't think that's who's really at risk of hurting this church. I think it is the Christian who has more of a frustration than a love for the local church. If your frustration outweighs your love for the church, for the bride of Christ, 
the part of the bride that Christ has put you in. If your frustration outweighs your love, you will come to this verse, you will approach your life, and you will come to Franklin City Church not in a helpful but a harmful way. And so how do we do this? How do we do this? Us who are a people prone to condemn, prone to be frustrated with one another, prone to be frustrated by the church, how are we to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works? Well, here are four ways that we can stir up one another. Four ways. First, we can stir up one another through prayer and being in the Word. We have to be praying for one another. We have to be praying for our church. Please do not pray in a room full of mirrors. Only thinking of yourself, only praying for yourself. Church, you have to be praying for your brothers and sisters sitting around you this morning. We have to be prayerfully considering how to stir up one another. And we have to be in the Word so that we can share it with one another to stir each other up. I have found that the people who are prone to frustrate me, I mean, not, not any of you guys, but past in past experiences, the people who are prone to frustrate me, the more I pray for them, the more my love for them outweighs my frustration. I mean, I, I don't, something miraculous happens there, okay? Time and time again, someone I'm frustrated with, when I really start praying for them, God does a miracle in our hearts and gives us more of a love for them than a frustration for them. And when my love outweighs my frustration, then I can approach them to stir them up in a way that is healthy, in a way that Christ wants us to treat his bride. And I remember when I was frustrated as a church member, I was greatly convicted of, well, how much am I praying for my pastors? How much am I praying for the people that are frustrating me? How much am I praying and considering how to stir up one another to love and good works? We must be a people of prayer, and we must be a people who are in the Word if we want any chance of stirring one another up. Secondly, we can stir up one another by setting an example for one another. I mean, what a great way this is to help others grow in their love for God, their love for their neighbor, and their good works by setting them an example to follow. It's been said that loving God and others and doing good deeds are much more readily caught than taught. Okay? You can try to preach to someone and teach them this till you're blue in the face, or how about you go set them an example to follow? Go set them an example to follow. Third, we can stir up one another by not neglecting to meet together. Look back at verse 24, Hebrews 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The original recipients of this teaching were starting to come under some persecution. 
They, they started to have some fear of the authorities. They started fearing uh, the gathering would, would hurt their reputation with others. They feared about coming under hardship. They feared their physical well-being. They, they, some of them stopped coming to the gatherings just because of a pride and arrogance, because they said, hey, I have Jesus. Why do I need anything else? I'm not really getting much out of these gatherings. What's in it for me? And therefore, these people were tempted to stop gathering with the body of believers. They stopped being with other Christians. And it's many of the same problems we have today. But listen, church, and we'll have these, we'll have these two lines up on the screen. Love and good works grow in the soil of Christian fellowship. Love and good works Grow in the soil of Christian fellowship. Frustration, animosity, anger, and pride grow in the soil of isolation. Love and good works grow in the soil of Christian fellowship. Now, Christian fellowship can happen in a lot of different ways, okay? But one of the ways we are trying to pursue that some is through our city groups, Right? Our city groups are our smaller gatherings that meet throughout the week in people's homes. And we see our city groups as being an integral part of your discipleship pathway here. How we are pastoring and discipling you, discipling you. We see it as equally just as important of a gathering as the Sunday morning gathering. Because we believe that discipleship happens best in community. It happens best in fellowship, in knowing one another and being known by one another. And we believe that fellowship is truly experienced when we share in a common purpose and mission, which is a part of why we have a a membership process to share with you some of this purpose and mission that our people are committed to being on, that we are a people, we are a people, we desire to see Christ treasured in Franklin for generations to come. We're trying to plant a church with our grandkids in mind. And some of you, that's really easy because your grandkids are here. Uh, but, but for some of us, it's a little bit more forward thinking, right? Our grandkids and our great grandkids and that people here in Franklin for years and generations to come would glorify Christ. We desire to be a people who beholds God, who builds up the body of Christ and who is sent out to bless the city and the world. This is our mission. This is our purpose. This is how we have fellowship, that as as God unites us together, as individuals come alongside the church and the church comes alongside individuals, it binds us together to have fellowship with one another as we see these things take place and be carried out. But we do not do this in isolation. We can't. We don't do this in a room full of mirrors. We have to do this in a room full of windows where we know those around us and they know us. I mean, how will you ever consider how to stir up one another to love and good works if you don't know one another? And therefore, you should not come to our city groups primarily to get something out of it for yourself. That would be the wrong mindset. Really, that would be the wrong mindset to come to any of our gatherings with. 
Okay? Now, I believe there will be fruit. There will be things you get out of it. But you should not be coming to these gatherings primarily to get something out of it for yourself. That's a, that's a room full of mirrors mentality. And many of our members, you don't. I mean, you come on a Sunday ready to outserve one another. I, I, I believe some of you are really like in your mind trying to compete with how much you can outserve the other, the other people right? I mean, how can we serve? How can we clean? How can we set up? How can we make sure, right, rent is paid for, pastors are taken care of? How, we even have someone who volunteered to clean the toilets and mop the floors. And so don't even try to compete. She wins. You can't outserve that, right? But we should not come to our city groups primarily trying to get something out of it for ourselves. We should come to them with the mindset of, what can I give to others? How can I stir up others by me coming to this? How can you help others love and live like Jesus? All right, all right, Bobby. And so I'm not trying to use this verse to try to guilt anyone to just showing up. We don't take attendance here. We don't take attendance at our other gatherings or something like that. I think that's a... a, I think this verse is bigger than that, okay? This, this isn't just trying to get you in the church doors anytime the church doors are open. The question here is not necessarily, are you at every single church function? I think the question here is, are you meaningfully engaged in the life of the bride of Christ? Are you knowing and being known by one another? And I don't want to guilt people into it. I I want you to see that there is more joy and life to be had when you live in harmony with God's word. You will be blessed. You will be happy when you walk in his ways, when you don't neglect the gathering of believers. And how will you be blessed when you gather together? Well, this is the fourth way we can stir one another up. We see it in our passage when we gather, we encourage one another. We encourage one another. To encourage or to exhort, it means to come alongside someone. If you want a visual, it's a, it's a putting an arm around someone to provide them some help and care, or maybe even to urge them to do something. But it's a coming alongside them to give them encouragement. To encourage or exhort someone, it's not the same as flattering someone. It's not the same as stroking their ego or boosting their self-esteem. No, a word of encouragement or exhortation sometimes means having to give a strong word of warning. But it's not done from a distance out of frustration. Encouragement means coming alongside someone out of a love for that person. It's not from a distance out of frustration. It's with them, in it with them, coming alongside them out of a love for that person. So for Christmas, the boys got a hoverboard, which I'm convinced they were made by ER doctors wanting to boost revenue. Uh, It was obviously a grandparent gift, not something uh, parents would get for their kids, but uh, they've got a hoverboard, all right? And so they're out there starting to learn how to use the hoverboard out in the streets. Now, how did I 
first respond to this? Was I in the driveway watching them from a distance, just yelling insults and discouraging comments to them? Hopefully you know me well enough. That was not my approach, okay? No, I I was out there in the streets with them, holding their hands, coming alongside them. Yes, at times, giving them words of warning. Hey, watch out for this, watch out for that. But it was also a lot of words of encouragement. They weren't doing it perfectly at first. No one does it perfectly at first. They're growing, they're learning, they're gonna fall and stumble, but they need to be encouraged. They need to be encouraged. Many Christians are content to live miserable lives on the driveway yelling insults at the church in the streets over their falling down and failures. May that not be so of us. Your brothers and your sisters and your pastors who are doing the work of ministry, who are trying to equip you to do the work of the ministry, they need you out there. They need your encouragement. No one's doing this perfectly. We're not doing it perfectly here. No other church in this city is doing this perfectly. We need your encouragement. A Christian is to come alongside one another and encourage them through this. And to encourage one another, we have to be with one another. We can't neglect being with one another. This is why the year 2020 was so discouraging for so many pastors and so many churches. They just, they just weren't with one another. And when we're with one another, we can encourage one another. We can come alongside one another. We can, yes, give warnings and, and stir up one another, but we're with one another. And so to summarize, we can stir up one another by spending time, number one, in prayer and in the Word. By setting, number two, an example for people to follow. By not neglecting to gather and be in meaningfully connected relationships with one another. And number four, by encouraging one another. Church, Jesus has made it possible to enter with confidence into the holy places. Therefore, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And let us stir up one another to love and good works. But listen, we absolutely need one another to do this. We need one another to do this. And I'll close with asking you to consider the redwood trees. Who here has been to the redwood forest or seen redwoods? Yeah, a few of you. There's not too many in Indiana, I don't think. Uh, But I love the redwoods. I love Muir Woods, walking through Muir Woods outside of San Francisco, one of my favorite places to walk through. I mean, the redwoods, they're just, they blow you away. Some of them are 200, 300 feet tall. They're hundreds, if not some thousands of years old. They've stood the test of time. And they're these beautiful, majestic creations of God. Now, with some of them being two to 300 feet tall, I mean, can you imagine what the root system must be like? I mean, these roots must be, they must go down deep. I mean, think how deep they must go on the ground to hold a tree that is 200 and 300 feet tall, that has kept a tree from being knocked over by wind and storms and things like that to stand tall for centuries. Can you imagine what the roots must be like? 
And I was surprised to find out that the roots of the redwoods only go down about six feet into the ground. Maybe ten on some of the huge ones. And yet they withstand strong winds and earthquakes and floods and fires. They live centuries and they have roots that only go down six or ten feet. The interesting thing about the redwood is that its root system is intertwined with the other redwoods around it. And they are literally holding each other up. The trees only grow when they're very close together because they're dependent upon one another. They're dependent upon one another to get the nutrients that they need. And church, the same is true of the Christian. If we are to endure persecution and hardships and trials, our lives must be intertwined with one another in order to hold one another up. We will only grow in spiritual maturity when we are close together and dependent upon one another. When we are in close fellowship, that's when real discipleship happens. We must not neglect to meet together. We must intertwine our lives and come alongside one another. We must pray that our love for one another and our love for the church would far outweigh any frustration or animosity we might have. We must not live in a house full of mirrors, but a house of windows looking out to see how we can as a people help one another. Because church, it is only together that we will be able to draw near, that we will be able to hold fast, and that we will be able to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's pray.